This is Paul Finnegan over here at Cold Storage HQ, where I've gotten word that co-host Heather Quillen has arrived at the Smithsonian Institution, where she's not only seen Archie Bunker's chair, she's found something of even greater cultural significance. Heather, can you hear me? Hi, Paul. Yes, I can. I'm coming to you live from the Smithsonian's Inner Sanctum, which houses the Carvel Collection. Tell us what you see. You're our eyes and ears there. Well, there's lots of tables, folders, and those pushcart-looking thingies with the things that hold the folders. No, I mean, what's in the Carvel collection? Oh, why didn't you say so? Here I am back from D.C. with a whole lot of memos and annual reports and meeting minutes written in shorthand. It was awesome. Define awesome. Well, aside from the fact that I was able to make it back from D.C. to Cold Storage HQ within seconds, Here's your Carvel wedding photo, drumming photo, angry-looking grandparents photo. But it's also putting together the pieces of what these reports say, or, to quote Hal Holbrook, Follow the money. Here's a few things I learned about Tom Carvel the man. He was not very involved with being Greek. I found two photos of him from a Hellenic parade and a million of him playing golf. And the former city councilman from Astoria you spoke to, Costa Costanatides, he said, Until you called me, it was the first time I'd heard it. Cool. And I'd involved with so many Greek organizations over the years, and they had never brought it up. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I, I was really, like, taken aback. Okay, he's born in Greece around 1906 and comes here with his family in 1911 when he's five. He's the fourth of five Carvelis kids. They end up in Connecticut, living in several different towns where there were Greek communities like Bridgeport and Stratford, and... Wait, I'll let the man tell it himself. This is something I found at the Carvel Collection that he'd either written or dictated because there's lots crossed out and rewritten. It's called The Advantages of Doing Without. <clears throat> the advantage of doing without means that you must learn to work with your hands and your mind and add pennies. By the time you are 10 years old... You will have learned more than the high school graduate if you learn to like your work. So, Thomas Carvel, it switches from third to first person. Thomas Carvel had the tremendous advantage that his parents were Europeans. Andreas Carvelis was an agriculturalist who studied wine in Greece and Italy. The wine industry was a very good profession, particularly for foreigners. When Andreas came here, he did not speak English. He spoke Greek, Italian, and some French, but his English remained bad because, like most foreigners, he associated with people whose language they understood. Page two. And then it ends with them moving to New York. I think there were more pages, but they're lost to the ages. But it also shows Carvel's values. There are countless stories about how frugal he was, how he... <clears throat> Dressed down an employee who dared wear a $300 suit. Toys didn't matter to him. The Empire did. Here he is talking about it on a 1970 appearance of What's My Line? A game show where the panel was Soupy Sales, Anita Gillette, you might know her as Vincent Gardenia's mistress in Moonstruck or Tina Fey's mom on 30 Rock, a very young Alan Alda, and Arlene Francis, whom about two people who are listening will know. Roll tape. Panel, may I tell you that Mr. X deals with a product. If you knew his name, you would know what his product is. We're moving in with Arlene. With me? Yes. Thank you, Wally. Uh, Mr. X, uh, 
Can I buy this product in a store? Yes, ma'am. One down, soupy. Well, is it uh, safe in assuming, uh, Mr. X, that it is a food? Yes. Two down, Anita Gillette. This would be considered uh, uh, one of the staples, uh, say, rather than a dessert form. Would, would it not? Say that. Even, no matter no. how much you'd like to think of it as a staple, we must be honest. We, we, must, say, say no. we must say no. Three down, uh, Alan. That's his opinion. <laughs> this is one of those frivolous foods that don't do you any good. Is that what we're trying to say? Oh. Oh, no. No, but it is. It's, no, wait. But it's not. It, but I say it would not form the main course of a meal. Right? Well, uh, I would, I would say, say it could, but I think Wally would say no. But generally, would, we wouldn't, we wouldn't a, serve it as a meal. It's a full meal. Spoiler. Unctuous Alan Aldo is the winner. Meet Tom Carvel. <laughs> so I guess that meant Carvel hadn't been doing many or any ads in 1970 yet, because after two seconds of hearing that voice, you'd know who he was. Here's a clip that sums up Carvel's philosophy. Have you ever thought about just, you know, putting a couple of old tires on a trailer and driving down the street <laughs> and wherever it pops? Well, yeah, I'll tell you. You eliminate all the essentials that we think we need now uh, when you're broke and hungry. For some reason or other, $3 is a big gross. Now you seem to think you need 300 Well, listen, enough about how it all began. You're very successful now, and we want to have a sample of the product. And I want you to show me the difference between regular ice cream and your ice cream, and you tell me right. there isn't a great deal. But let's all take right. a look and find out for ourselves. All right. A cancel check from his appearance shows that Goodson Todman Associates, a name that'll be familiar to those who watch game shows way back when, paid Tom Carvel $50 to be on What's My Line, which meant Carvel made the equivalent of $400 to do a quick ad for his product, and the panel got to try their hand at using his soft serve machine. They were terrible at it. Carvel would have fired them all. And actually, he did fire Arlene Francis from recording his radio commercials. Carvel Mythology has it that his move from Connecticut to New York City was about the time he started the many lines of work which either gave him a nervous breakdown, tuberculosis, both or neither. Dixieland drummer, football player, mechanic. None of these varied professions led to any success. But did combing through the archives tell more of the story? So, there's no doubt that Carvel sold some kind of frozen dessert from a truck, whether it be ice cream or custard, which has egg yolk in it, and it's like the cream in an eclair. There are photos of many types of Carvel trucks, as well as first-hand accounts of people seeing Carvel peddling his wares like a proto-Mr. Softy on Central Avenue. Even the Carvel.com timeline says he started selling from his truck in 1929 the year Agnes supposedly lent him that $15. But breaking down in the hot sun on Memorial Day in 1934 is not what gave Carvel the idea to sell ice cream from a fixed location, nor was he always in the New York City area. And actually, according to the 1930 federal census, Tom Carvel was living in Detroit with two men named Philip Corey and Fred Buchanan in the Lincoln Avenue apartments, where he listed his occupation as making syrup. Philip Corey, a West Virginian of Syrian descent, was related to Carvel by marriage and worked for a bakery, and Fred Buchanan was a divorced car salesman from Michigan. You don't usually see roommates way back in 1930. Often someone who is unmarried would live as a lodger in a house, and in no interviews or anecdotes does Carvel mention a detour to Detroit. 
the usual timeline is that at some point, Tom Carvel was diagnosed or misdiagnosed with TB and moved from Manhattan to Westchester for better air. I cannot believe that would be the case for Detroit. A nervous breakdown, perhaps, as Carvel himself said he'd had in the Guideposts article we mentioned in episode one, the one with Pop Quinlan, but that's just a guess. But Carvel was back in town in 1931 because by December his plans to open what he called a Carvel Dairy-Free store were turned down by the Board of Architectural Review in Rye, New York. Think of Rye as the horrible rich cousin of Yonkers, which it still is. Also consider the fact that these plans for Carvel Dairy Freeze were three years before the apocryphal tire blowout. Tom Carvel was already trying to franchise. I wonder what those plans look like. You didn't see them at the Smithsonian? No, there were ones as early as 1945 for a Carvel-owned store called the Custard King, whose logo kind of looked like Burger King with an ice cream cone. But most are the mid-century ones we know and love. Except for Rye, they hated those too. But the concept of franchising didn't start with Tom Carvel, right? Because there had been several examples before. Right, I mean, you could go all the way back to super inventor Benjamin Franklin, who franchised his printing business. But in Carvel's time, this was still kind of the Industrial Revolution, so you saw businesses like General Motors, and then consequently the oil industry, franchise to keep up with demand. And it was the same for the food business. There was already A&W, Howard Johnson's, KFC, White Castle. Was Tom Carvel, however, the first to franchise an ice cream business? Reports vary. It seems to me, you know how two movies on a random topic will happen to spring up at the same time? Like that time two movies came out about magicians or the two movies at the same time about Truman Capote? Which came first? The race is between Carvel and Dairy Queen, its Midwestern competitor, and it's a toss-up. Many cite 1934 as when Carvel started in 1940 for Dairy Queen. I think Carvel started the ice cream business in 1934, before Dairy Queen, but franchised in 1949, after Dairy Queen. So you can say both sides kind of win? The bigger question is, who's still around? In 1934, Carvel set up shop at what he claimed was a pottery store. The only pottery store I could find was several blocks away, owned by a couple named George and Evelyn Oppenheim. Convinced they were the real Pop Quinlan, I called Alfred University, which is where the Oppenheims met and where Evelyn bequeathed 7,000 books of English literature after she died. I asked them if they knew about the Carvel connection. They didn't. That's because there isn't one. Whatever 95 Central Park Avenue in Hartsdale, New York had been, I can't tell you because the clerk's office charges $20 a day to look up property records and you can't search by address or block and lot number. But by 1934, the property was being rented as a store called Dairy Freeze. In 1937, Tom Carvel finally married the former Agnes Stewart, literally a silent business partner because I've barely read a quote from her. Agnes's sister Isabel was her maid of honor, and Tom's brother Bruce, once known as Spiro, was his best man. We'll get to Bruce in a second. But first, in 1938, Carvel moved with Agnes to Mechanicville, New York. If you've never heard of Mechanicville, you're not alone. My spellcheck wants to call it Mechanicsville, and frankly, so do I. But would a town by any other name still be as sweet as one with a Carvel? Dateline, December 17th, 1938, Mechanicsville, New York. Opening today at 1 p.m. is Carvel's, 1 North Main Street. 
Announced yesterday for this morning, the opening delayed by unforeseen difficulties in completing arrangement of the new ice cream and luncheonette headquarters. In charge of the store, which has been completely renovated since it was closed several weeks ago, are Tom Carvel and Ned Shepard, formerly of Hartsdale, where the parent Carvel store and luncheonette is located. The Carvel newlyweds even made the Mechanicville Society pages, where it was announced in January 1938 that Mr. and Mrs. Tom Carvel, South Main Street, are spending several days with relatives in New York. And then... Dateline, October 7th, 1939, Mechanicsville, New York. Change in ownership in Carvel's Confectionery, Park Avenue and North Main Street, was announced this morning. Tom Carvel, who with Ned Shepard operated the business the past year, announced that business ownership had been transferred. Mr. Carvel will take a position as traveling representative of the Whipsedare Sales Company of New York. And then, it's war! It's December 7, 1941, and after the attack on Pearl Harbor, America had no choice but to officially make this a world war. And they had a secret weapon in their arsenal. I'm not talking about good old American daring do, I'm talking about ice cream. That passion for it that began during Prohibition, which we talked about in Episode 2, ran hot again as our boys went overseas. No rationing here. In fact, the need for comfort food was so great that the U.S. Navy spent $1 million converting a barge into a floating ice cream factory that could make 10 gallons of ice cream every seven minutes. It was sent to the Pacific where it brought the much-needed dessert to ships that didn't have their own ice cream facilities. That's right. Many ships had the ability to make ice cream. In fact, when the Japanese struck the USS Lexington in 1942, the crew grabbed all the ice cream they could before abandoning ship. Back home was Tom Carvel, stationed in North Carolina's Fort Bragg. By the time we were at war, Carvel was an old man of about 35, so the action he saw was at the Fort Bragg Army Post Exchange. If you Google Tom Carvel in Fort Bragg, you'll read many variations on this story published on a site called The Papa's Post. With the coming of World War II, Carvel was sent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he served as a refrigeration consultant and concessionaire. This experience allowed Carvel to improve his ice cream freezer and team it with a specially formulated ice cream made with the freshest ingredients to create the high-quality product we know today. I mean, it's even written like a Carvel ad. A specially formulated ice cream made with the freshest ingredients to create the high-quality product we know today. So, remember the Whipsedare sales company that Tom Carvel left Carvel's confectionery to work as a traveling salesman? Yes. Well, in 1994, writer and oral historian Tom Weiner, who specialized in recording the stories of those involved in the Vietnam War, took a different tack when he recorded the Carvel Oral History Project, now part of the Carvel Collection. Among his interviewees were former Carvel Executive Vice President Frank Hubner, attorney Herbert Ross, niece Pamela Carvel, and her mother Linda Carvel, who was Tom Carvel's sister-in-law. Linda, who was born in Paris, Texas, met Tom's brother Bruce while she was on a trip to New York City and had a front row seat to the drama that occurred between the brothers. Tom and Agnes were already married when Bruce and I met. Bruce was interested in sports while Tom loved music. 
He played drums. Years later, he and Gene Krupa would play together at Tom's home. He liked to be around show people. He was very good at promotion, while Bruce was the inventor. When I met Tom and Agnes, they had a business on Central Avenue in Yonkers, which sold hot dogs and frozen custard. Agnes was one of the car hops. The business did not have the Carvel name on it at that time. During the war, the government allowed Tom to set up a frozen custard concession stand at Fort Bragg for soldiers in training. They had a big truck, and Agnes drove it. And this is where Linda sings Agnes's praises. Agnes, the unsung hero of Carvel. She was a terrific worker. The biggest mistake he ever made was when he told her, we have plenty of money, you don't have to work. And he hired a secretary named Anne McHugh, who was eventually replaced by Mildred Arcadipani. So what of Linda's husband and Carvel's big brother, Bruce? Bruce was involved in franchising home winemaking businesses. After the war, Bruce developed whipped cream machines. When Tom returned from his Fort Bragg stint, he decided he wanted to go into the franchise business. Bruce developed a machine to make soft ice cream. The advantage of Bruce's machine is that you could regulate the consistency and add certain flavors. And what was the name of this invention? Whipsadares was the name Bruce used for his ice cream making machinery. And this is where you find out that working for family may not be all that sweet. The brothers had no agreement in writing. They got into an argument over business. Bruce claimed he was paying all the bills but wasn't being compensated for his work. Tom didn't pay him for the use of his machines. Tom seemed to resent Bruce when he would introduce him to people that we kiddingly call Bruce the handsome one. The seeds for this relationship may have been planted as far back as Tom Carvel could remember. In a 1975 interview he gave to the Hellenic Times, Tom recalled, Ours was a genuinely Greek home. My father unyieldingly upheld the commandment that one must honor one's parents. As children, we were taught to respect each other. In fact, my father's discipline was so rigid that I was not allowed to interrupt my older brother when he was speaking. That older brother? Bruce. They didn't talk to each other until after our oldest child, Pam, was born in 1948. Though at any time Tom needed advice on something technical, he did call up Bruce. If Bruce suggested something that worked, Tom would publicly take credit for it. But Bruce didn't resent it. Tom was good to our daughters. He paid for Pam's college tuition. Pam went to work for Carvel right out of college. She tried to give Tom business advice, but he brushed her off. As it turned out, she was right about a number of things. Tom listened to the crooks, but not the good people around him. He didn't think Bruce and his family were too bright. He would say, Look at me! I'm a millionaire! What are you? Years later, when Tom wanted to sell the company, Bruce had to sign over all his copyrights. He was supposed to get $3 million out of the deal, but wound up with 366000 Everything else had either been stolen or taken out in taxes. Tom died in 1990 in his sleep, not long after he sold the company. He had told Bruce he wasn't sure what he was going to do after the sale went through. He sold because he wasn't in the best of health. Tom wound up with $80 million, and Bruce got nothing of it. Here's the last thing Linda has to say. He was very involved with details of running the company. People were stealing from him anyway. On that cliffhanger, so Paul, what's next on cold storage? 
Next on Cold Storage, we find out who these crooks are, how Carvel evolved from Dairy Freeze into the wonderland of cookie puss that we know and love, and finally answer the $2 million question. And finally answer the million... <laughs> the Shit, $2 man. million dollar I don't know where, two, where did the two come from? Inflation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and finally answer the million dollar question. What goes into that soft serve ice cream? Until then, I'm Heather Quinlan. And I'm Paul Finnegan, and this has been Cold Storage.